This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Welcome to Eat Drink Asia. I'm Bernice Chan. And I'm Alkira Ryan Frank. We've got a big episode ahead today with a not so secret speakeasy from New York City and a chef who's seen the evolution of Hong Kong's food scene over the past three decades. But first, Bernice, I understand that you sunk your teeth into a Wagyu beef burger worth 100 US dollars. Was it really worth the price tag? Wait a second. I did not eat the entire sandwich. I only had $25 worth. <laughs> was that your choice or was <laughs> did you, could you just not finish it? No, no, no. It was it was a press preview and all of us only got one quarter of the sandwich, which is basically a seared giant slab of prime uh, Wagyu beef from Kobe and it was in between two slices of toasted bread and it was really good but that one quarter was really rich. I feel like I can make that at home for like an eighth of the price. Uh, Where'd you get it from? It's called Wagyu Mafia and actually they're going to be opening soon in Causeway Bay. Really close to where our office is so maybe you want to start saving now. Only if you spot me $100, I'll go with you. (laughs) Months ago, when we first started this podcast, our very first episode was all about Hong Kong's burger scene and how it's really exploded in the past few years. But since then, the burger wars in Hong Kong have truly started to heat up. That's right. And we've got five guys from Washington, D.C. who are opening up at the end of this month in Wan Chai. And a few hundred meters down the road, Shake Shack from New York is opening up its second location in Pacific Place in Admiralty. And as someone who likes her burgers, how are you going to handle that, Alkira? Well, I'm super excited. It seems like we've got this this tug of war happening. We've got some of the biggest hitters from America coming to Hong Kong. Earlier this year, Shake Shack, which is the the East Coast burger joint from America. West Coast, you've got In-N-Out Burger. Let's Pray to the burger gods they will come to Hong Kong eventually. Uh, So we've got Shake Shack already. Now that they're opening a second branch, only the next suburb along. And just down the road, we've got five guys opening. And so they're in competition with each other. What does this say about the Hong Kong market that we've had so many uh, big chains coming to Hong Kong? Well, part of it is because there's a lot of Hong Kong people who studied overseas or maybe worked overseas and they've tried these burgers before and they really enjoyed them and they've since come back. And also these international brands, they're looking for new markets and Hong Kong is definitely on the top of their list. Except it's a really expensive city with rents, even for a place, say, charging $100 for for a sandwich. How can can a place with really cheap burgers compete with some of the, the most expensive restaurants in the world. Well, remember when we went to the Shake Shack opening at IFC? There was a massive line for those 56 Hong Kong dollar burgers. So you never know. Competition's always healthy and I cannot wait. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about American brands branching out in Hong Kong, PDT or Please Don't Tell is a well-known speakeasy in New York City where you have to go into a telephone booth to get into the bar. And earlier this year, they opened their first overseas branch at the landmark Mandarin Oriental Hong Kong. And the entrance is also very similar to the New York one. So Hong Kong has a lot of speakeasies. And there's one like Mrs. Pound. How do you get into that one? Well, they keep changing it. When I went to Mrs. Pound, it was a key key store, I believe. 
and you had to kind of pick the right key to get in. But now it's like a little gem store where you had to push the, the right gem or stone to get into the store. So PDT in Hong Kong is staying true to what they do in New York. But instead in Hong Kong, you walk into this hotel up these stairs and into this phone booth. You close the door behind you, pick up the phone, dial zero, and hopefully you'll be let in. And the door behind you opens and to reveal the uh, very intimate bar. Which has animals with hair on them. It, it looks, looks like a very it looks like a very classic bar. And it's got a lot of wood and it's got um, a dark green coloring and things like that. And they've got these cool animal heads all on the wall, kind of like playing on the old mahogany hunter's lodge. But obviously, everything's fake. Don't worry, it's not. Nothing's been killed in the making of this bar. Recently, we caught up with PDT's general manager, Jeffrey Bell, on one of his visits to the bar to talk about how American customers compare to the ones in Hong Kong and why people here love their hot water. We're here at PDT in the landmark Mandarin Oriental, and we're here with general manager Jeffrey Bell. He's come in from New York. He's here for a couple days. Hello. Hi, how are you today? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. What is it about bartending that you like so much? I like the interaction with people. It's it's not. I mean, there are some there are some things about the job that are repetitious, uh, but it's not a monotonous job. Like you're always, if you care, you're always going to have a new story to, to tell every day. You know, there's a different conversation you're going to have with somebody, um, and I enjoy that. I like talking to people, I like being around people, I like creating experiences and providing you know a nice time for people, something that they can remember. And it's not, you know, not necessarily about the cocktails. Like, I think I, I've been a great bartender for my whole career. Now I just know how to make really good cocktails and I'm a great bartender because uh, it, the most important thing is how you feel when you go to a bar. It's not like you're going to sit there and you're just going to start tweeting about how amazing the drink is. You're just like, you want to have a good time with your significant other or business partner or friends or whatever the occasion is. You're there to have a good time. And the cocktails are definitely like something you consume as you go, but you're there to have fun. So that's kind of the point. Is bar etiquette the same wherever you go? So how do Hong Kongers behave compared to New Yorkers when they're at a bar? There's there's sets of rules of etiquette for patrons. uh, And that's kind of like an unsaid thing. That's something that they kind of have to work out with each other. And then bartenders kind of have a, a few things they should always be paying attention to. It doesn't matter where and I think most importantly is people's safety because we're serving something to to consumers that are already maybe in a slightly altered state because if they've had a cocktail or two or maybe they just had wine with dinner they might not have their best decision making hat on so it's our responsibility it's not our role, job it's our responsibility to make sure that people are consuming safely and you know uh, and not going to harm themselves because you know you never know what somebody's going to do after they leave your bar they for example here you got to walk down a flight of stairs god forbid somebody tries to drive a car you know there's a lot of things that you that could happen afterward and we're the last people that really have influence over um you know their behavior we can tell them no you can't have any more to drink that's a that, that's a hard thing to say but it's a very important thing to say so another thing about etiquette, what are some things customers do wrong in the bar? Like, what are, what are the things bartenders complain about after closing time? Oh, man. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I think that that made me a better bartender in, because it gave me even more empathy and to realize, or maybe 
more humility to realize you can't control situations. And sometimes people are just going to behave in a way that you don't want them to. And like, there's only so much you can do about it. For me, egos bother me. When people have big egos and they, and they, and they mess with like other people's experience, that's what bothers me. There's a lot of things that we can control though. That's, you can diffuse situations. So I think the worse bartender you are, the more you're going to have to complain about at the end of the night. You know, if somebody is like crazy obnoxious, you, if you didn't put them in their place earlier on, the, you know, you could have stopped it from happening. You know, uh, it's okay to tell people to leave your bar if they're, if they're awful for the room. Like we're sitting in PDT Hong Kong and I bet we can fit 30 people in here comfortably if the seats are all full, bar seats are full. If we have one bad guest in here that's just obnoxious, you know, throwing their elbows around, trying to run the joint, it's best for us to kind of figure out a way to get that person to, to slow their roll or to get them out of the bar because that person could then flip the experience for the other 29 people. So there's a lot of things that you can complain about, but there's a, there's a, almost all those things you can complain about are something you can influence. Is there any hacks for people who may not be, like may not go to cocktail bars all the time, but in terms of how to get the best out of the bartender, how to not be, not to not be that horrible person, but how do you ensure that you're going to get, I guess, the best quality drink? You know, it's tough because I feel like a lot of bartenders are very excited about the fact that they're bartenders now. You know, they could be, I mean, I'm on a, I'm on a podcast right now with you guys and I get a lot, I get a fair amount of media attention being here and, some people might let that get to their heads. So, you know, I do feel bad every once in a while I see somebody go into a bar and the bartender's really, really proud of the fact that they're a bartender, you know, and uh, that kind of, it's hard, it's an uphill battle. If you don't know what you're doing, like drinking wise, and you have a bartender like that, it's, it's not going to end well. I like just transparency. So if you don't know, be like, hey, I don't drink that much. I don't really know what these cocktails are all about. I once had a, glass of red wine that I loved it was this style or I had a beer that I loved it was this brand or if you can give a few cues on what you like usually that'll <clears throat> let the bartender know give them some direction um I mean you can do process of elimination too like I I I, I hate bitter I hate this I hate that it's always good to give like just kind of some snippets about yourself um, what what about the deal about tipping? Is it true you get better service if you tip up front, or should you do it at each round? I think people that tip up front think they're going to get better service because they think they're buying somebody, and I don't like that. I don't. I mean, if somebody hands me cash, uh, hey, sure, I'll take it, right? I think bars are kind of like the last bastion of like uh, you know democracy or like egalitarianism, where it's like everybody should have uh, a the ability to have a good time, whether, you know, they're the wealthiest person in the room or if they're not. So I don't want to treat people that way because especially in super wealthy cities like New York or Hong Kong, like the kind of person that doesn't have enough money to go out that often, they're already, they already might be a little insecure about going to a place that's $15 or $20 for a drink. And I, all the dollar amounts I'm using are US, sorry. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we can just multiply by eight as you guys probably all know how to do. Yeah, so I, I don't like to... Tip, I, I don't think tipping up front is, a, is, a, is an honest, is going to provide honest service. I mean, there's like the old New York thing of like greasing somebody, you know, folding up a 20 in your palm and like, usually the people that grease you are like going to grease you with like a five or something. It's like some, a, a denomination of money that's not going to change your life whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Usually those are the kind of people. And then they want like, they want like the prime table. They want the special <laughs> treatment. They want you to like 
dance on one foot or jump on one foot mm-hmm. or like, you know, they want you to be their entertainment. Mm-hmm. So don't tip up front. It, I, I think it's tacky. Do you call yourself a bartender or a mixologist? Well, I think, I think mixologist is a kind of like a silly term, but I think it still has a place. I, I think that it's, it's a way to articulate things and it's all about being, having good communication. Mm-hmm. It's like, I could talk about, say, some of the staff. I have a lot of exceptional bartenders in New York right now at the bar. I would say some of them aren't great mixologists, not meaning they can't follow the recipes that the people and staff that are more of a mixologist, but they're not the ones that come up with the recipes. There's like, so you need to, if, when you staff your bar, you need, everybody needs to be a great bartender because that's the, that's the act of tending to the bar and, you know, taking care of people and making drinks. And then the mixologist thing is something that goes behind the scene. Like, I don't think a mixologist, calling somebody a mixologist paints a picture of anything about making cocktails. Because, or, or serving cocktails. Unless they're like making them on the fly or something like that. Or they're experimenting while they're working. Then I guess it's the same thing. But I, I think mixology is the aspect of bartending where you're, you're developing recipes. So yeah, I, would, I, don't, I don't get offended. And it's like, a lot of people like to use the word mixology. A lot of... Consumers that don't know a lot about the industry like to call us mixologists and like, who am I to say, no, you can't call me that. It's not an insulting word. Some people get all, you know, huffy puffy, like I'm a bartender. I'm not a mixologist. And some people do the other way. I'm a mixologist. I'm not a bartender. And it's just a title. I mean, if you're comfortable in your own skin, you don't really care what somebody calls it. As long as it's not like an insulting thing. Do you think is um, bartending growing in popularity for young people as a means to travel the world and see the world? And not in terms of, you know, it's always been popular for people to pick up and go, you know, pour beers around the world. But this new level of like, you know, these these people who create cocktails, mm. do you think that that's a new way for young people to travel and see the world? Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess I, I'm, I am a millennial. I fit into that, that uh, generation. So, but I... I the the negative connotation of millennials I'm gonna say is for the the people that are like five to ten years younger than me, so I think the the coming of age bartenders are like the tw- the, the out of university twenty two that want to travel, I think it's a very appropriate thing for them to get excited about because it's a fast track to success. <laughs> That's why it's appealing to young people. It's like, oh, I could actually not go to college and I could go make a fine living in New York City and then get to take two weeks off at a you know, two weeks off a month if I work at the right place, you know, and just party. So, yeah, it seems quite appealing. Um, but I think that demand is growing, supply is growing faster. So I think that there are a lot of people that are very eager to get behind a bar and want to get into the job, but not a lot of qualified people. It's almost like there's a little bit of a bubble, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are opening bars that probably shouldn't. Uh, a lot of people are behind bars not behind bars that's a bad <laughs> maybe they're behind bars uh working behind bars that probably shouldn't be selling somebody drinks for 20 dollars a piece they probably don't haven't put in the time so i think that bartending used to be it still is a trade but it used to be something you worked up to and there was like a hierarchy and there would be a key you know a lot of places like the first bar i worked in i worked there for four years the guys that trained me worked there 30 and 17 years so that's like the old school american way like you you worked in a bar and you were like a part of it and you was like it was you didn't own the business but you you kind of were like 
it was your space to make as much money as you could in it because you would cultivate regulars and you would fill your seats and do you think that um, bartending is now becoming that job that people aspire? It's a job that people aspire to, to actually do compared to, say, like when you got into uh, hospitality, it was more about paying the bills, paying for your university. So is it like a glamorous oh, job? Oh, yeah. Now? I mean, I mean, he just passed away, but Anthony Bourdain speaks a lot about, uh, or spoke a lot about um, the kind of people that worked in restaurants. And it was always kind of like ex-cons, nomads, immigrants, people like wayward souls that didn't really know what they were doing. That's kind of like, that's, I think it's still kind of the heart of every restaurant. The people, that, not ex-cons necessarily, but it's a way, it, it, it was, it's a field that anybody could work in because no one really wanted to. And now it's changing a little bit. But uh, yeah, when I went into bartending, it was kind of like, really? It was, it was like a joke, like, oh, you're going to be a bartender. It wasn't a respectable thing. Um, so it's a bit different now. I mean, I get to see, you know, like, I've seen half the, you know, half the world and, you know, like, own a bar in Hong Kong, I run a bar in New York and, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like, I live a great life, it's great, but I think I, I got lucky because I went to, I think I went to the job for the right reasons and then the, the this tide of excitement raised me up. Like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just fortunate. I, I've worked very hard, but I think that the amount of people that want to get into it has just like kind of put the people that have been in it for a while into a better position. So, Can you tell us uh, the difference between what people in New York drink versus Hong Kong? Yeah, I'll tell you a little something about water. It's funny that it's not a, it's not a dig at anybody here. I just think it's just a, it's a funny thing when you go somewhere and it's just like you never thought that would be a question. So we in New York, we serve ice water to, to everybody that walks in the door. That's just, that's kind of like standard hospitality. And then here we have, uh, we have this great uh, filtration system called Nordac Fresh. I try to offer people still or sparkling water that's better than, you know, Pellegrino or whatever, but everyone thinks that I'm selling them something. Everyone is just like, they like stop me. They're like, no, 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 no. We don't want that. So sometimes I'm just like, I just, I just, just need to pour people water and just not even have that whole, like, let them know I'm trying to do something. I always nice freak out because I want tap water because I'm worried that I'm going to get charged excessive yeah. amounts of water here. Yeah, well, I mean, I get it because I, I go out to eat here and I see that that's like, oh, yeah, you want water? Here's a, you know, a $10 US for a bottle of Pellegrino. I'm like, great, as much as my entree. Um, but that that's kind of like a funny thing. It's probably just derived by the service culture, um, people trying to, you know, add on everything to, to get the sales up. But um, the, the, the point I was getting to is that people here have a preference on temperature that's not something that you even think about in the States. Every once in a while somebody asks you for room water without ice in, this, in the States, and it's usually they would be like, I have sensitive teeth or, you know, something like that. They're like always, always going to tell you why they need it different. There's always some sort of explanation of why they're special. Um, but here it's like cold. Cold is like default, but then it's like room temperature or hot. So it's almost like I go to the table and I'm like, instead of asking if people want, they want sparkling flattish, be like, so what temperature would you like your water? <laughs> because everyone really cares about the temperature of their water. Like we, 
we, when we designed the bar, I wish I could go back in time and design the bar with a hot water tap behind it because we, we, we have one around the corner, so it's not like difficult to, to access, but we keep pitchers of hot water. This is very commonly consumed here. And it's not like we're in Siberia. Like, it is hot. <laughs> it's like, I, I went for a walk the other day, two, two days ago, and I felt like I was fully clothed walking through a steam room. The way, like, I was drenched in sweat. And those people are walking around in that, and they come in here, and they're like, oh, no, hot water. <laughs> so, in the, you know, in the States, you hot water requests would be, like, on frigid New York winter days where it's like... I can't feel myself. I'm so cold. <laughs> I need something warm to hold on to to come back to life. And here it's, you know, so that I get a kick out of that. People drink slow. Differences, though, people drink at a slower pace in Hong Kong and New York. Um, there's, there's probably some biological things that we could probably get into that is a whole other podcast um, on, on why. But there's a lot of people that have one drink or barely finish one drink here. It's a cultural thing, you know, and in the States, most people could probably take down three cocktails and still function, and it's not as common here. So there's some differences, and I find that people here are happy. We wouldn't care if it was this, the same price of a cocktail and it had a half the amount of alcohol. Like, that's what I, th I think is, is, a, is a stark difference from the States. It's almost like... Americans really like value, and I think that they almost like, I don't know if this is a word, but commoditize <laughs> um, being intoxicated. So it's like, that's part of what they're paying for when they buy a drink. So you couldn't just charge like them, say somebody doesn't have a to doesn't want to drink much alcohol or doesn't have a tolerance, you couldn't just be like, oh, this is, just has half the alcohol as that drink. In the States, people would be like, well, why? is at the same price then. That's kind of, there's a value in the effects of alcohol that is built into the price for the average American consumer. I haven't done a case study, but I'm, that's my, uh, that's my belief and my, my people. <laughs> but I think that here it's, it's a better perspective where it's, I'm paying for this thing. It's delicious. I'm in this room. I'm having a fun time with my friends. And I think it's actually quite admirable that they're like, I would like a little less alcohol because I can't actually drink it. Not everybody here is that responsible, but that's more common here. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, this it's been a, great chatting with you. This is fun. Thank you. Make sure you stay for uh, a drink or two. <laughs> Bernice, Bernice, you stay for one. She'll have half. I'll yeah. have one. Oh, and what, yeah. Finish your hot water. <laughs> so that was Jeffrey Bell of PDT. I've actually been back since we recorded that interview. And we, when we were there, it was the afternoon. And so we were pretty much the only people in the bar. But I went back in the evening. And it is an upmarket kind of crowd. Everyone's there. Adam, uh, he's the head bartender there. And he's been brought over from the US. And he's making some of the best cocktails for everyone. And even uh, cocktails off the menu. But here's a hot tip. When you go there, please order the tater tots. I've never tasted such good tater tots. I've had the Japanese one. I think there's some togaroshi on top uh, and some mayo. And last time I had the typhoon tater tots. It's like a spicy Hong Kong version and I'm never disappointed. <laughs> oh my God. Sounds like we both have to go back there. Yeah, that's, that's a good reason. Okay, we've had our drinks now and it's time to head for the mains. And one chef who has seen the evolution of Western fine dining in Hong Kong is Grey Kunz. 
He came to Hong Kong in the 1980s as a chef de cuisine at Plume, and it was a French fine dining restaurant in the Regent, which is now the Intercontinental in Hong Kong. He's Swiss, but was actually born and raised in Singapore. His experience in Asia has influenced his cooking style, and in 2009, he opened Cafe Grey Deluxe in Hong Kong, and it had the mo- it has the most spectacular views of the city and uh, Victoria Harbour. And we got a chance to talk to him about his career and his love of flying. So we're here with Chef Grey Kuntz at his restaurant, Cafe Grey Deluxe, in the Upper House in Hong Kong. And he's a Singaporean-born Swiss restaurateur who's based in New York. That makes it very complicated. Good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think the the idea here is, is, is you know, I, I think you can go straight to the cooking. And I can, I we cannot want to de- ask you about your childhood, though. Well, that's what I'm saying. I cannot deny my past. So that's why there's a lot of things that I'm doing that are... I'm trying to actually say something in the food-wise that where I come from, which I think is quite normal because I was born there in Singapore. I lived there until I was 11. So um, so what was your childhood like? Oh, it was great. I mean, I did a lot of swimming. I did a, you know, a lot of things uh, outdoors and um, family was there. So I have two other brothers. And, uh, uh, yeah, and my dad was, was, a businessman, was a businessman and he, had, he traveled quite a bit. Um, but my childhood was really uh, very interesting. I, I went to St. Joseph Junior School, which is now a museum in Singapore, and uh, I still have the fondest memory. There's a friend of mine actually who was, who was there in Singapore, which I, I forgot uh, completely about him because I didn't recognize him. We went to the same school, same year. We were also born the same year, and I, I, I completely forgot about it. But through our, my son and his son, we got together again and uh, were able to, to, to rekindle all the fond memories that we had. So it was a very good time there. And where did your love of food come from? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I think the love of food came basically through the travels that I did. It came through, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big outdoors person. Um, and I hunt for mushrooms. I go all kinds of stuff. And maybe that love for nature kind of kind of told me that there's something I should be doing in, in the food world. Not that, well, actually, my both of my brothers, they're also chefs, but they went into different directions. And um, I started loving food when I was in summer. First, in summertime, I had to go and work. Dad said, you know, if you need to go and buy something, then you have to go and work for it. And so I did that, and, and um, I went with my older brother during the summertime. And that's kind of how I really fell in love with food. And that through, because I think he was also a great mentor for me. Mm. He showed me kind of the ins and outs. Were you influenced at all by by the, the food from Singapore, or were your parents cooks? Uh, you know, were they good in the kitchen at all? Yeah. Oh, definitely influenced influenced by that. But you know, we we spend the time a lot in the hawker stands and 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 so forth. So, and that food is still open market hawker stands, still the best in my opinion. So, um, plus hot weather. I do remember very well there was a stand that my when my dad showed up whatever that was I forgot was it was a noodle soup or something was already there ready for him because they knew he would come by and he was kind of like a regular so but I I think that today actually I look at it as food being kind of a universal and a very strong language uh, something that we can we can showcase and and people will understand Um, and I think that there are there's much much more for me to say when it comes to food Um, and, and I think that 
I'm as enthusiastic as I was when I started. Get a little bit more tired too quickly, but other than that, I think I'm I'm quite okay. So, and and I feel very comfortable with with coming to Hong Kong. Um, they have a fantastic team here, so in, both in Hong Kong and Shanghai. So I'm I'm actually in very good shape. Can you take us back to when you actually first arrived in Hong Kong all those years ago? What brought you here in the first place, and, and what was it like then? Well, I actually saw an ad in the paper that that Bloom was actually looking for a chef. And I said, you know, I'm not going to uh, respond to an ad in the paper, but I did. And um, one one thing took after another, and um, I left uh, uh, Switzerland and Crissier, which which my my past boss, Mr. Girardet, was not very happy about that I was leaving because they always had kind of me in mind to take over the restaurant. But I didn't. I never wanted to do that. I wanted to. I wanted to go on by my own. And, and I think that was the right choice. I know it's the right choice. So, what was it like working at Plume? Well, it it in the beginning was very difficult because I had no idea about the culture shock that that I would be walking into, and um, you know I applied the same techniques and the same harsh ways of working in in Lausanne, which which never worked, um, would never work in Hong Kong, nor do I apply that any time here. But I I had a very uh, um, difficult time in the beginning and I had to ask myself after a while you want to stay in Hong Kong or, or you want to get shipped back home so I decided to stay and what I did is I started observing what the cooks did in the morning I don't know if I told you the story about they came in the morning and they they set up a pot with, with boiling water and that that pot that teapot looked like it's been around for about 50 years and two big handfuls of bole inside and and uh, and, and they use that then all day long to drink. So uh, I, was, I was really disappointed about my own kind of uh, um, comportment and how I, I, I spoke to people. And so I started thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe I, should, I should make a step forward and, and do something for them. So I started with that pot of tea and one thing led to another. And still today, I think, well, I can go, I went, two years ago, I went to, to, to well, now the Intercontinental, and all the guys showed up. They're still there, now they're sous chefs and everything. It was so incredibly great to see that. And I can say today is, without doubt, including here in Hong Kong, it's the best team I ever had. No, wow. no question. So you know, I, 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 um, I didn't, I, I lost most of the time betting on horse races, but, uh, <laughs> and, and so, and we went once to Macau and I had to bail a couple of guys out, you know, so, but other than that, I lost. So. Good but, memories. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 no, no, no question, but it was, it was very, really, but the, the team that, that I had there was, was really fantastic. The restaurant opened only for dinner, but it was a huge restaurant and, and uh, very fond memories of that, very much so. And how has food in Hong Kong changed since then? I, I think I think product procurement has been has become much better in Hong Kong for sure. Um, we don't need to fly everything in. I'm a very big supporter of uh, of, of doing local and and uh, I'm pushing Swire to actually create our own local farm, which I've been talking to them for ten years. So it's about time we get that going. Um, I think the food has changed also more on 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 the as I said on the local, but then also um, I'm not sure if it's simplified. But there's specialities that I can see in Hong Kong that are are, are um, focused on one thing and doing it perfect. Especially I, I don't hang around in the fancy restaurants. I go to Dai Pai Dongs and eat the noodles and things like that, which I love. So um, 
but I think the the, the trend is, is really definitely going towards you know simplifying um, good products that we can find now and uh, you know at that time I, I, I don't think I could even remember even wanting or being able to order organic food which today now has become kind of common and so we're staying ahead of it uh, um, we were kind of the first one that really paid attention to sustainable seafood and then now we have also we went into the whole entire menus of, of creating really sustainable seafood but also vegetables non-gmo you know paying a lot of attention to people's people's dietary restrictions which i think has increased triple or fourfold since since last time i was at the region um and and i have no doubt that that is also due to our environment the things that we breathe eat and 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 taste and see. Um, so I, I think that is really, I think in, in many ways, a, the big change that I have, I have seen. Is, is that following on from what you see in New York? Is, is Hong Kong following what's happening there or, or are chefs here, you know, forging their own path with it, food trends? It is, it is. And New York, you know, is, is, will always can, kind of stay ahead in the limelight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can give you an example for Shanghai, how quick it's following through. Um, and uh, I met a couple of providers and farmers when I was there last time. Um, it's amazing. There's there's virgin land in but you know, 1,200 kilometers north that I never knew existed, and now they're building uh, you know kind of these these farm communities where they plant really sustainable foods. So and I think we're going to see big advancements coming from China. I'm a very big proponent about. Um, about that, and in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong it, it's 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 vibrant as well. We we just I think what we need to do here is to be very careful that we, uh, because of the of the land restrictions we have, that we we first and foremost plant in 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 sustainable grounds, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think I think we're going to see more of that. So whenever you come back here, where do you like to eat? Do you usually go to your old favorites, or do you try to find some new places? Well, the first two days I kind of hang out here because I'm kind of disturbed where I am and and what time frame I'm on. But uh, it takes me only a day, day and a half. Um, but other than that, I, I really I go to Wan Chai. I go to to Kowloon. I haven't been to to Shamshi Po Market for for a long, long time. I should go back there or to the fruit market. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm I stay kind of local because. My time restrictions also. I start at seven. I go to the gym in the morning, and then I I go whenever it's whenever the customer's leaving. So it's a long day. You mentioned before that you go to diaper dongs when you get the chance. What do you order when you go there? Um, well, first and foremost, I cannot read what they have. <laughs> that that's already a problem. Um, but I ask my my uh, my assistant. You know, he sometimes comes along with me, um, and and he explains to me what what what's on the menu. Um, but I have also fondest memory in in, uh, in Shenghuan when we did our testing prior to opening the restaurant, um, and this ABC menu and that have not changed. So I kind of switch between A, B, and C, and that's what I do. But I like to be adventurous also. I mean, there's some things that I would love to taste that I haven't tasted, but sea cucumber is not one of them. <laughs> so no, you don't like sea cucumber. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, bitter gourd. I got bitter melon. I have kind of adapted that taste. It's actually very good, um, and the, and the Chinese do it really, really well. So, 
But I'm I'm never I just actually I have a, I don't want to 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 say that I, I I like my same thing over again. But when I go to a certain place that I know, I kind of tend to to order the same things all over again. So, but it's the mood also how I feel. Am I very hungry? Not hungry? You know. So I think that that plays a role as well. But there are a lot of places that you can go to that are that are really fun. You sit outside in the small stools, and you can see the fish swimming or the prawns jumping. What of that? It's been so nice to speak to you again. It's a pleasure indeed having, Thank you. having me, and uh, wish you a great afternoon. So that was Chef Grey Kunz of Café Grey Deluxe, and this wasn't part of the interview, but afterwards he treated us to the most amazing afternoon tea spread. It was outstanding. And so I come from a long line of afternoon tea lovers, and it was a clear winner for me in terms of like my most favorite afternoon tea experience. It was a three-tiered uh, spread. We also had a plate of scones with uh, orange peel. Very fancy. Oh my god, they were so good. Yep. <laughs> and then we had my favorite. There was a chorizo pastry. We had strawberry shortcake. Strawberry sh- shortcake. Uh, god, what else? There was just so many. Uh, there was a blueberry Danish. There was uh, chocolate milfoy. Milfoy is that how you pronounce it? Milfoy. Yep. Uh, sorry, I was just stuffing my face full. I just can't. I can't uh, remember how to pronounce things. Um, and it was just one of those things that we were just. I feel like we were there for so long afterwards, just trying to power through it because it was just so amazing. And then we had a food coma after. Yeah, that was it. But that was yeah a true highlight of my afternoon tea experience. So hey, Okira, what are you working on these days? I've actually got a story coming out very soon about the three Hong Kong chefs that will be flying the flag on Netflix's new reality cooking show called The Final Table. The Final Table? Like, do we need another reality cooking show? Well, it's true. There are so many cooking shows. They've been around for the last decade. There's been a huge boom at the beginning of MasterChef. Then we had the States had a number of uh, a number number of shows run by Gordon Ramsay and all different people. And I think a lot of them have been based around um, either getting home cooks or getting. Um, amateur cooks and yelling at them showing them what they need to do but uh, the final table is about getting you know the creme de la creme the top of the food world into a cooking arena to really highlight and and showcase the food that people from around the world are doing so there's actually 24 chefs so there's three from Hong Kong uh, but there's 24 chefs and they're paired up and each week they have to cook a cuisine from a different country around the world which is then judged by a kind of a culinary master of that cuisine and the end game is that they're trying to get to the final table which is nine icons of the food industry who are judging their food and I guess they don't win any money it's not like any of these other cooking shows it's just the bragging rights. That sounds crazy so that kind of sounds like Iron Chef times two because they're paired up. Yeah, well, it kind of actually looks like it. There's no host at the beginning that's biting into a cucumber or a capsicum or whatever he does, an onion, uh, which I'm very disappointed about because I love that 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 beginning scene in um, all of the Iron Chefs. But it is shot in a big arena. You do have these uh, chefs looking down and, and these big figures in the industry, but they're looking down on other big stars. These aren't just uh home cooks or these aren't just people they've plucked from any old restaurant these are michelin starred chefs these are chefs that uh, are well known around the industry so but they are competing uh for their reputation they've put their reputation on the line but i think for a lot of them the difference with you know 
it is a big moment putting your reputation on the line, but they have seen what Netflix has done with The Chef's Table, where they've really taken, they've elevated the culinary talk in the world through visuals. And when I spoke to Shane Osborne uh, from Arcane, and he's representing Hong Kong, that's something he said, that he was willing to give Netflix a go because he saw what they had done with Chef's Table and wanted to show the world that the culinary industry isn't this whole high-pressure, shouty, sweary kind of place. It is a place where people love food and they love good food and they really want to share it with the world. So who are the other two Hong Kong chefs that you talked to? Yeah, so we had Shane Osborne from Arcane, which got its first Michelin uh, star last year. Rafa Gill, who at the time of filming was at the Ritz-Carlton. He's now in Jakarta. And Esdras Okoa, who is from 11 West Side in Kennedy Town. He's also known as the LA Taco King. So I'll be interested to see how he goes. And you can catch all the episodes from November 20 on Netflix. So that's all we have for you this week on Eat Drink Asia. Don't forget, you can always keep up to date with the latest food news, video features and reviews on scmp.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Beijing Calling and at Alkira Ryan Frank. We'd love to hear where you've been dining and any tips, rumors or recommendations would be welcome. Happy eating! 